0: Welcome to Software Security Chet Chat, episode 197. For the 6th of May, 2015, I'm Chester Wisniewski, and I'm in Vancouver this week, hosting the chat Chat with my friend Paul Ducklin.
1: Hello, Chester. In fact,
0: you're probably slightly further away than when we last spoke. As a kind of a, a way to switch things up this week, I thought it might be fun to partially crowdsource the chat Chat, so I did a, a call for ideas out on Twitter, and I had a bunch of great ideas from some of the people who listen to the podcast. So I want to thank them for sending in those ideas. And in fact, the very first topic is one that was suggested over Twitter, which is Microsoft is uh, revamping the patch cycle after sort of setting the gold standard nearly 15 years ago with their patch, nay, update Tuesday. Um, You and I speculated about this a few months ago. It looks like Windows 10 is going to be a really big change for Microsoft.
1: Yes, like the gold standard, uh, all currencies were once based on precious metals. So it was actually worth shaving the edges off coins, which is apparently why they have milled edges, so you can see when some of the metal's been removed. Uh, But no one uses the gold standard anymore. And uh, the same thing is happening, as you say, with Patch Tuesday, that, or, sorry, Update Tuesday, that uh, Windows 10 will be moving to that more Linux-flavoured rolling release model
0: one, I wonder if this is in reaction to Google's Project Zero. I mean, we saw several times where there was all this criticism about the timing of Patch Tuesday.
1: Oh, I'm sure if you ask Google, they'll say, it. oh, yes, we set the gold standard for doing vulnerability reports. I just think that the world has got faster, both from the side of the crooks and the side of the good guys. So I guess they've also got that confidence that they can find a problem, fix it, test it ship the fix about as efficiently if they do it all the time as if they do it once a month. Yeah. Sure, there are going to be mistakes. There are with monthly updates anyway. It does mean that on some occasions he'll be waiting three or four weeks less before the update appears, because he won't have to wait for the next bus to arrive.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it'll help with quality, right? When you try to squeeze things in because you have some arbitrary deadline, you make mistakes, and this will give you that extra two or three days, perhaps, that you need to assure quality. I'm, you know, on the enterprise side, they've said, well, you know, you'll still be able to do Update Tuesday if you're on an enterprise license with, uh, you know, SCCM, etc. And that's that's nice and all, but I'm kind of thinking that it'd be nice to make it more of a slider rather than Update Tuesday. Like maybe on the enterprise side, what they should let you do is hold back all the ones that are coming out in real time until an arbitrary date and then release that bunch of them to your environment. And maybe you want to do it every week or maybe you want to do it every two weeks. Allow people to shorten that cycle, right?
1: And I guess you can argue from a from a system integrator's point of view, somebody who's trying to support all sorts of software on Windows for all sorts of customers, if you can adapt to having patches coming all the time, then Having some of your customers who do them in batches once a month is just a special case of, of the uh, general rolling updates, isn't it?
0: Well, we'll I think Windows 10 adoption's going to probably uh, be very high. People seem to really like the technical preview and the insider version that's released now. So uh, as that develops, we'll keep covering it here on the chat chat. Since we're talking about time, uh, I felt like I had gotten on the airplane when I left Las Vegas, and when I stepped off for a minute, I thought it might be 1992 again because I was reading about a telnet vulnerability in a medical device. Uh, Was I imagining something? (laughs) Oh, dear. Yes, you're quite right. I mean, this is quite scary. So this device is a a medical device that's used to administer medication to people intravenously, and uh, I've been on one of these devices in the past. Yes,
1: PCA, Patient-Controlled Analgesia. So instead of getting a shot of pethidine every four hours and going through a period of being completely stoned and then a period later on where actually you're in a lot of pain again because the medication's wearing off, you press a button and it gives you a little bit of pethidine every five minutes, say. And the idea is that the device locks the drug away so no one can steal it easily and the button has a lockout. So if if you press it every 30 seconds, you won't get an overdose. But if you don't need the medication, you can choose not to administer it. Great idea. The problem is that the this particular model, as I understand it, has a wireless interface, robust wireless, as it's called in the sales blurb, um, that actually allows the thing to be updated with things like drug information, drug schedules and that remotely. And uh, as you say, they left uh, Telnet listening on port 23. There's no encryption. So a crook on the network if he were listening in, could steal the username and password, except that you don't need one. Unauthenticated root access.
0: I I figured that was actually by design. I mean, at the point that you choose to use Telnet, there's really not a point of putting a password on it because anybody can have the password that wants it. So I guess if you're going to leave Telnet open, you may as well forget authentication. I mean, it does show that security was obviously not any part of the specification or the design, right? I mean, this doesn't, happen if there's been even the most cursory review
1: or of the implementation or of the quality
0: assurance yeah it's it's a little scary and you know this is not that different than when i wrote and i think we might have talked about on the podcast about insulin pump security a few years back when jay Radcliffe uh did his presentation at black hat and and being someone who wears an insulin pump i i paid close attention and was quite concerned about the risks and vulnerabilities involved. Uh, I I don't suspect anyone's trying to kill me per se, but um, it it almost seems like when there's so little concern or investment in securing something that you could accidentally cause someone harm. I mean, I, I have to wonder, like, if I ran a penetration testing tool on my network and said, find all the ports that are open and check whether, you know, authentication works, could I accidentally crash this thing Simply by having you know a bad Perl script run amok, just trying to test things.
1: The whole idea of this is it, it is to provide not just safety for the user who can't accidentally overdose, but also to protect this medication, which is strictly controlled. And if it is so strictly controlled by law, if it is so dangerous that it has to be controlled like that, gosh, how can uh, how can unauthenticated root access be allowed? I mean, all you have to do is run nmap against your own product and this should stand out like a sore thumb. So I wonders what else didn't get spotted in the testing or what else was considered acceptable. I guess the bottom line is if you're building a device or you're building a server don't put Telnet in there at all. There is no device so unpowerful these days that it can't use something like SSH.
0: Which kind of leads us to the next story, I guess. I mean, Google's released a new extension for their Chrome browser that looks into whether you're reusing your Gmail slash Google Plus slash Google whatever service password with another website. So if I go to log into Facebook and I type, you know, Google is the awesomeness and that's the same as my Gmail password, it will give me a big hairy warning and kind of tell me I shouldn't do that. How do you feel about that?
1: Well, I think it's quite cool, but obviously there's quite a lot of load in that. Presumably they don't have the time to hash every text string that you type into every field on every form on every page proactively. So actually what happens is you get the warning apparently after you've put a password into a form and then submitted it. And they realize, hey, that password hashes out the same as your Google one and you sent it to a non-Google site. So unfortunately, it looks like it's reactive only. So if you want to turn this on, it doesn't seem any harm in it. But if you are worried about putting the wrong password into the right site, or the right password into the wrong site, uh, I'd go for a password manager instead, where the password manager decides whether to enter the password at all based on whether it's the correct site. It makes it really hard to get fished, because if you go to try and put, say, your banking password into a bogus site, the password manager will go, I don't have a password on record for that site. I can't answer the question.
0: Yeah, it felt a little self-serving to me in that it, of course, only applies to Google's like, accounts, which like, somehow they're more important than other accounts. And it would have been nice if this feature warned you that you're using your Facebook password on Yahoo, right? If they've got all your passwords, they could provide this service for more than just Google services. And it seems like maybe they're only looking out for themselves. But I guess you got to start somewhere.
1: Yes, and although it's reactive, Getting a reactive warning about a security problem almost immediately uh, is better than getting it two months later when you look on your bank statement and say, oh dear, I'm sure I didn't go to Honolulu three times last month.
0: Hmm, That sounds pretty good. Now, not everyone has been in the uh, anti-malware security business the 30 years that Sophos has this year, but it was really hard for me to believe that the awareness of the problem kind of for a lot of people started 15 years ago this week with the love bug
1: oh yes the love bug mr onel de guzman from manila in the philippines uh he'd been a very naughty boy it seems at university wrote a password stealer and ended up not graduating because his lectures came down on him rightly like a ton of bricks one of them right wrote on his uh on the report he handed in this is illegal we do not produce burglars um, but, of course, he famously or infamously went on uh, to write the Love Bug Worm Virus, uh, written in Visual Basic script. And once he ran it, it emailed itself to not just to everybody in your address book, but to every address in your address book, including mail groups, each of which could have tens or hundreds of recipients. So it brought the world's email infrastructure kind of to the brink. Uh, and actually, that was that collateral damage was in many ways worse than the password stealer he did try to install as a side effect of the malware. Uh, he escaped prosecution because it turned out there wasn't quite the legislation to deal with it in the Philippines. The legislature quickly scrambled to pass a law after that. So he sort of got off scot-free. Um, the question is, did we learn enough from this?
0: Well, I, th- I And mean, it could be argued that this was the beginning of a series of security crises in malware on Windows that created Patch Tuesday and forced Microsoft to kind of change directions with how they dealt with security. So I guess in a small way, there's a little thank you in there. I mean, this and SQL Slammer and Melissa and a few others kind of Made it so obvious that we needed to do a better job at patching and fixing that that many people um, you know required and demanded that Microsoft do something about it and, and they did in fact and and I like your question though I mean are we any better today I mean clearly it's not as easy to do some of this stuff like it was back then I remember in those days that you know you still would have JavaScript run you know in email messages in all kinds of things that we've slowly locked down and changed the technology to try to prevent this type of thing from recurring. But then on the other hand, I see mistakes still being made that could allow a similar thing to happen, right?
1: Yes, and if you think about it, in the old days when these mass mailing viruses were prevalent, you got a kind of non-committal message. It just said, I love you, and it pretended to be a .txt file, used the good old double extension trick, But generally speaking, it came from someone you knew, because you were in their address book. But we're still opening up, say, fake invoices, news items we happen to be interested in, bogus courier deliveries, that sort of stuff. We're opening those up from people we've never even heard of. So my gut feeling is that this probably could happen again. And if you like, there was almost a silver lining in love bug. I mean, funny sort of silver lining. It went so big, so fast that you couldn't ignore it. Ah <laughs> ha So big. <laughs> oh yes, that was an that was an unintentional joke. But the other thing, Chesty, you know, you would have been forgiven at the time if you'd poured out your own raft of love bugs because everyone was doing it, so you wouldn't have stood out in the crowd. Um, these days. It's a little harder to forgive somebody who's sending out spam or malware because they've got an internal infection. There are much stricter regulatory requirements on you, depending on your industry sector, about not doing that, even though you may well be yourself a victim of cybercrime.
0: That is absolutely true. Uh, And on that note, we'll conclude Sophos Security Chat Chat 197. And as always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. These podcasts are available via RSS on iTunes, on the TuneIn app, and over at soundcloud.com slash security. Until next time, stay secure.